You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. The Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in, AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. My guest today is uh, Deborah Gilboa. Uh, she's properly known as Dr. G. Um, she is a go-to expert on raising and educating respectful, responsible, resilient young people. Um, she's been a contributor on the CBS Morning Show, Pittsburgh Today Live, and has shared her doctor-tested, kid-approved advice with the media um, widely. Um, she has a terrific new book. It's called From Stressed to Resilient. The Guide to Handle More and Feel Less. Uh, Deb also uh, uniquely, um, as a young person, was a stage manager that I hired at the Second City. So I knew her and gave her some really terrible advice about potentially not going to medical school. Um, but I think we all turned out okay. So enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is getting the yes and. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the Uh, Dr. G, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm really pleased to be here. Yeah, I, I don't think we've talked on a video. I'm trying to remember the last time we talked in person. In person? Uh, well, I came to your office after you saw me on Windy City Live and messaged me on LinkedIn to be like, what are you doing on my television? Get your butt into my office. Okay, that was it. And then previous to that, I think it was because the Deb I knew was actually a stage manager for me, right? Yes. When I quit working for you at Second City, you said to me about going to medical school, the exact same thing my parents said to me about going into theater in the first place, which was, you'll never work. Why are you giving up your great future to do this? <laughs> <laughs> and then you said, I didn't say that. Did I? You'll come back. They all come back. And I was oh, like, no, but I'm not going to the organic. I'm going to med school. And then wouldn't you know it? You were right. When I came back to your office that day after you saw me on Windy City Live, 
we created a show together. You remember what's yeah. happy yeah. got to do with it? Yep. 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 And then we did right. that show for a year. So you were right. You're always right. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right. You have a fantastic uh, new book. And I kept singing its praises to my wife. And she's like, stop telling me about this book. Um, so <laughs> I love the way you, I love the way you start it. The first four words in this book are, we believe a lie. Um, so what, what's the lie? The lie is that stress is a poison. Mm. When I was in med school, one of the things they told me was, oh, you know, stress is a risk factor for everything, meaning every bad thing, every pathology. So tell your patients to avoid stress at all costs, which made me cock my head up like a confused puppy. And then they said, stress is the new smoking. Wow. And I was like, but, but, how can that be right? <laughs> right. Because, because like, if you are in peak performance over a variety of domains, you're experiencing a kind of stress. For sure. The, the nasty little secret that this view of stress completely ignores is that our brains perceive all change to be stressful. Even what we would definitely all agree is the good stuff, like getting a job you applied for or proposing to someone and they say yes, or a much longed for baby or winning the lottery, whatever it is, our brains, because our brains have a million functions, but one job, and that job is to keep us alive. Good news, we are currently alive. Bad news, all change is suspect. All of it. Not just the new COVID variant change, but also uh, your phone is updating its operating system change. Also, um, I hired one person to mow my lawn, but now there's a different person out there mowing my lawn. All change is suspect. And so all change causes our brains to dump certain stress chemicals, and have three reflex reactions to change to make sure we're not going to die. All right. What are the, let's name the three. Loss, distrust, and discomfort. Okay. So loss aversion, very well-known heuristic, but like it's lurking behind there with everything, right? Right. Find out that, you know, I applied a grant to help my community and I, I worked really hard for it. I totally know all the good it will do. And I get the email that says, congratulations, Dr. Gilboa, you are the recipient of the gajillion dollar grant. And even while I might be thrilled or proud or excited, my brain still goes, I did, did it. what could you lose? Mm. Right. Are you going to be able to do your job? Are you going to be able to keep your relationships? Are you going to be able to keep living where you live? Distrust. Was that really my name on that email? Did they say I got it or just made it to, I'm going to go read it again. And then discomfort. Oh my gosh, I think I really got it. I'm going to have to be in charge of people that I don't know, or I'm going to have to administer funds, or I'm going to have to have fiduciary, what's going to be uncomfortable. And that ability to hold both those emotions, right? The pride, joy, excitement, and also navigate loss and distrust and discomfort as just safety reflexes is crucial and happens with every change, especially when we're working towards something. You know, I work with Olympic athletes through the United States Anti-Doping Agency, mm. and these people are seeking out stress because it's aligned with their mission, who they're trying to be. Resilience, which to me is what we're aiming for here, because it is the antidote to stress, right? The, the overwhelm. Resilience is the ability to navigate change not just difficulty because of everything I just said, the ability to navigate change and come through it with integrity and purpose. Basically come through it, the kind of person you mean to be. 
But if you think, well, all stress is poison, I should be avoiding it. I should be kicking people out of my life who stress me in any way. And if I cause stress in anyone else's life, I'm the villain. You become stuck in discomfort forever because there's no possibility of change. So I want to lean into discomfort a little bit because I am, we've been having a lot of conversations because uh, I hang around with a lot of university professors and we have a school, school where my kids went and we we're talking to those teachers. And there is a sense that generationally, we have a generation of young people who are very uncomfortable with comfort to a degree that folks don't know how to deal with. Certainly, you know, from working with Second City that improvisation is all about embracing discomfort. It's, it's about learning that you're going to have these, these fears that you're going to fail and all that stuff. And, and we, you get up there anyway, you fall down, you figure out that, oh, I, I, I can get back up. Um, so I'm wondering what you're seeing in the world with regard to this idea of discomfort. Managing discomfort is a skill. And mm. the dichotomy that especially millennial, young millennials and Gen Z are facing, but the truth is pretty much everyone is facing, yeah, is that, that we have a lot of lore around trusting your gut. And, and we do talk about it in improv, trust your instincts, but your gut feeling is different than instincts. Instincts are what's aligned for me, you know, what feels true to me. Your gut feeling is, am I uncomfortable? We've spent now almost two full generations as parents trying to shield our kids from discomfort because we can and accidentally giving them the idea that if they're uncomfortable, something is inherently fundamentally wrong. Right. And that's another lie. Discomfort means you're growing. It may suck, but it is often valuable. It's, it's physical, it's emotional, all that's like, like it, it, from, from when we're babies and we're teething, you know, it's like that is necessary discomfort. And it, I, I hate to tell you this, I'm older than you. It doesn't stop ever. For sure not. And I think that, you know, in the Olympics last year, Simone Biles really put a fine point yeah. on the difference between discomfort and danger. And that's the skill we need to all focus on learning. I need to know what's dangerous when I need to say, whoa, whoa, time out, defibrillate the situation. Something's got to stop and then be different. That's when I face danger, but discomfort, and no one can argue, that woman faced discomfort that the rest of us would call torture. That's right. And she faced it willingly and she embraced it and she moved through it. Only when the scale tipped and she said, wait, I think I could become damaged by this. This is now danger, time out. And she hit pause. And I said in, in news interview after news interview, I said, that's the skill I want my kids to learn. That's the skill I am trying to make sure I learn as an adult to understand if it's dangerous, yes, say this isn't safe. But this idea that every space and every choice and every opportunity must also feel like the comforty inside of a down pillow is untrue. Yeah, untrue and unhelpful. And, I, and one of the problems is that uh, it's very hard for human beings to 
reframe, to change context. And what we're talking about is like, it's like I have a podcast called Yes And, you know, is no valuable? For sure. In setting boundaries, no is totally valuable. We're talking about in the context of early stage creative ideation or what have you. Well, we're just, we're talking about saying yes to anything that aligns with your priorities. That's right. We set boundaries so that we can put our energy towards our own mission, towards our own goals. And if people come at us with extraneous stuff that is both avoidable and not focused on our priorities, then we get to put up boundaries and say, no, sometimes stress comes at us, change comes at us that doesn't help with our priorities. Like my dad has a new difficult diagnosis, does not align with my priorities. Thank you very much. But it needs to be because my real priorities in life include my family and their well-being. So we say, okay, that comes onto the boat, right? That comes with us. But we're going to toss off the boat things that are not aligned with our priorities and are actually avoidable. That's a useful time to say no so we can put our energy towards all the yes and that moves us through change towards the kind of person we want to be. All right. I want to talk to you about connection because this comes up on the podcast all the time. It's based on, on study, like the grant study out of Harvard, which showed that relationships are so important. Um, and, and the idea of when I, when I try to do sort of visiony, purposey statements around Second City, I always land on uh, the fact that we use humor and improvisation to spark connection and that there's nothing more powerful than a shared laugh. Right. The, the, the magic of being in a room when, you know, you're up there at the light booth and, you know, in three seconds, someone's going to say something on stage and the audience is going to laugh. And you're like, I like this. It's I never stop marveling, you know, with that. Um, I, I, I want you to tell the story of your son getting stuck in Italy, because I think that that is a great example of this, this going from fear uh, to finding connection. OK, uh, I was about to take the stage at the. Um, Atlantic City Conference Center in New Jersey, which if you've ever been there is this cavernous, completely soulless place. (laughs) And right before, maybe 10 minutes before I was going to go get introduced to give this talk at at a conference of several thousand people, my cell phone rings with an Italian cell phone number. And I thought that is unusual, but my son is flying from Israel back to the States today through Rome. So I'm picking up that call Mm -hmm. and I get Alitalia. Uh, Dr. Gilboa, we know that you're, you have a, you've a ticketed passenger on this flight from Tel Aviv to Rome to New York. The flight from Rome to New York has been delayed by a day. We just wanted to let you know. And I said, wait, 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 it's my 15 year old son who's on that flight. He was returning from this program he was doing in Israel to come to my dad's wedding. And they said, well, don't worry, we'll give him a hotel voucher. And I said, fantastic. Will you also give him a fake ID? Because I don't know a hotel that will let a 15 year old check in on their own. And he says, oh, no, senor, I don't, I don't think we have that available. And hangs up. <laughs> and I was like, I mean, I was kind of kidding, but that was not supposed to be the end of our conversation. So right. I realized that I have a 15-year-old who might have some euros on him, but does not speak Italian. And I don't want him to sleep and hang out in the Rome airport for 22 hours. And right. I don't know who can help me. So I use social media for good. And I got on and I said, hey, who do I know that knows somebody in Rome who can help my 15-year-old son who's going to be stranded there for 22 hours? And then I went on stage. And for an hour and 15 minutes, I talked about resilience. By the way, you can't have as your career talking about resilience and then complain about anything from the stage. Exactly, exactly. So um, I did my thing. 
with maybe a little extra frantic energy. And when I got off, I found that I did know at least three people who knew somebody. And by two hours later, I had somebody who could meet him at the airport and drop him off at the apartment of a girl who was a medical student there who was studying for finals. So she couldn't do anything with him, but he could sleep there and she could explain to him, you know, how to, he had such a great 22 hours in Rome that at the end of it, when he, after he came home, he said, can I stop in Rome on my way back? And uh, I was like, that was an accident. No, you cannot. But I said, okay, something I say to other people a lot, I don't even know who I know. So I've never been to Italy. I don't know anybody there, but I know people and they know people. So let's widen my connections right now. And, and, and ask for help. Right. Exactly. You have to be willing to put yourself out there in that way. But it's those connections. And boy, in general, people want to be helpful. They like to renew those connections. I heard from several people after that when I gave everybody the follow up, because we all want to hear the end of the story, who sure. said, hey, thanks. You reminded me. I reached out to my college roommate's sister that I met once. And people renewed relationships because they had that shared sense of purpose together. And that's something that, you know, I still have with friends that I still have from Second City. It's that shared purpose. And the times in my life where, because Second City is its own alumni network, I've run into people who are also Second City alum out in the world. We have that shared sense of purpose that goes way through, not beyond, but through creating laughter together to building a way forward towards, towards the world the way it's supposed to be. So the email that I was just responding to before I got onto our Zoom uh, was from Nia Vardalis, who is in Greece directing uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3. And she wondered if I could send them a Second City t-shirt for a 19-year-old male character who she's going to have be an employee of the Second City. And I'm like, oh, of course. <laughs> of course I yes. do. And, and that's not an unusual part of my day is, is those little requests. And of course, we just announced our alumni advisory board, which is like, I was just going to say to you, you took people. I mean, those are people who were there when I was there mm -hmm. and you said, Hey, come back to your connection. You know, you haven't, you have, you've been here in name and in spirit for all these years, but you haven't been here in a decade or sometimes two. come back and, and realign with our mission. Cause it's still your mission. And right. that those connections, when I saw the people that you've chosen for that board and who've agreed, you know, said, yes, I want to align with you on this work. I thought Second City is going to be not just fine. It's going to be great with these yeah. people saying we're keeping an eye on that mission and we're putting our energy into this. It's going to be great. Yeah. And I've got to give credit where credit's due. Stephen Colbert personally made every one of those phone calls because he wanted to do he wanted to make sure everyone understood where he was, where we were, so that if they're stepping into this, it wasn't just ceremonial, that it would be have some muscle to it. And everyone's agreed to do stuff. And and and, and it's many generations. That was also important uh, to him and, and people from Toronto and from Chicago. Um, you know, th this I had a professor on from the University of Michigan, and this come up a lot where he, he basically studies um, uh, ties. And he talks about um, our, our strong ties, uh, our weak ties and our dormant ties. So very much ties to you, you, like your story, which is like, all those are valuable and you really don't, the, the strong ties, you don't have to work that hard on, but you really kind of want to keep your weak ties, you know, uh, like tended to. And then watered the dormant a little. ties. Yeah. yeah, watered a little. And the dormant ties are important because we, we think people don't want to hear from us if we haven't talked to us in five years, when absolutely the ap opposite is true. 
I mean, that's been you and I, like we, we right, for sure. reconnect every decade or so, but, but it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a gift. And most people actually, and there's so many of the scientists that we worked with in our, our work recently who've brought up the evidence that individuals are reluctant to share details of themselves. And I love the study they did out of the University, or University of Chicago uh, and, and elsewhere, where you basically go up and ask people for increasing amounts of uh, favors. So it would just start with directions. And we're like, can you walk me there? It, you know, and then people do it. Like overwhelmingly, pe- people want to help. Yeah, absolutely. And knowing that because, okay, so if the goal here is to be able to navigate change, the good stuff, the bad stuff, the unexpected, the expected, the longed for, whatever it is, but you're going to navigate that change as easily and the best you can come through it, the kind of person you want to be, or in Second City's case, for example, the kind of organization you want to be, mission oriented is how I would put that in the companies that I work with. Then building connections and deepening connections, like you're talking about, keeping in mind your dormant connections and having the guts to try to revive them, you know, re- repot them and get them flowing again. That's a really important skill. It's a really important skill. Setting boundaries that we talked about is also one of the science based, evidence based skills that we know helps resilience. Managing discomfort is another one of those really important skills because otherwise, Believe it or not, with loss, distrust, and discomfort, most people get stuck in discomfort. If they're going to get stuck, they get stuck in the discomfort, even though loss can be so much more flattening and distrust is really insidious. We're certainly seeing that around North America, if not the world right now, yet it's discomfort that people can't quite pull their foot out of the mud about. Yeah, I think in part because we're feeling that in many moments throughout a day, whereas a, a, a big loss is something that could be years ago, still hard. Ebbs and flows. Yeah. Ebbs and flows and distrust kind of happens. And, and when it happens, you know, it, but it's not, it's not like, it, I hope it isn't uh, a thing that's, that's, that's moment to moment, but I know, for example, like you and I do a ton of public speaking. I get nervous before I go and on the, and so, and I, we're, we're doing an event here and I've got to say a few words and I've like, I literally started getting in my head about it. I'm like, what am I doing? I'm I know I'm going to be fine and I will be fine, right. but I have, I have that. I had to deal with a, a another problem that a, a difficult conversation, which was uncomfortable. So God, it, it really, and, and you have a lot of exercises in, in the book, which I like, uh, but that, that's a, that's a practice skill to sort of swim through the discomfort uh, so as not to miss, you know, the good stuff. Yeah. The thing that I find most encouraging about this is that it turns out resilience is not like your eye color. It's not just a trait that you're born with. Mm-hmm. And it's not only earned by being forged in the fire of suffering. If it worked to build resilience by going through suffering, then you wouldn't have anybody that you know where when a bad thing happens to them, it continues to be hard for them. It never gets any easier. Every bad thing is another pile on the on the ton of bricks. But we all know people like that. So mm-hmm. just going through struggle isn't enough. And going through struggle isn't crucial to building resilience. And that's that's one of the places that the work that I've done and the people's work that I've built on differs from the usual story about right. grit. Grit is about getting through adversity. Resilience is about navigating change. And it turns out to be a series of skills, 
building connections is one, setting boundaries is one, managing discomfort is one. You can pick up any of those skills. First of all, you've got some competence in all of them. That's right. Right? You have a little bit or a fair amount or a lot of competence in each of these, but you can grow and polish any of those skills at any time so that when change happens, you feel less winded. Yeah. It's, I was talking about this actually very recently with Anne, uh, that you, when you go through a tragedy like we have, you, you need a pretty big toolbox uh, because you never know when the one tool, you, oh, I didn't think I'd need the screwdriver. I actually need the screwdriver. Oh, I need a hammer. Okay, I, I need that. And then this sort of idea of l- listening to yourself and, and like, this is the big thing. It's just like, I, I love to say yes to all the invitations. I love to say yes to see all the shows that I'm invited to and all that. I really can't do more than a, one or two a week right now. And that's maybe based on what we've gone through, maybe based on age. I don't know. Times I've pushed that to like three or four, I, I then don't have, I'm depleted and I don't have the skill or the emotional wherewithal to get past if something happens, you know, that's going right. to be unpleasant. Yeah. The truth is, and there might be people listening who are thinking, well, a lot of people get through hard stuff without a big toolbox. And I would say, yes, but here's the problem. Then they go to their destructive tools much faster and they live with those destructive tools as their main coping mechanism. So it is everybody who makes it to adulthood has their coping mechanisms. The advantage to learning to manage discomfort in the way that we're talking about is to have more positive and neutral coping mechanisms so that you go to the negative ones less often. Yeah. Uh, you, you have a nice phrase in here that I'm looking at my notes where you say, you talk about seeing stress as a tool and not a toxin. Uh, so I guess that, that is, that, so that is another tool that we need. And the, the example I give all the time is my friend, um, Alison Woodbrooks from Harvard gave Anne and I a note where uh, she said, if you're feeling nervous before uh, like speaking date, say out loud, I'm excited. And that simple thing can turn that stress into a positive. It is, I usually, the, the analogy that helps me through as I compare stress to exercise. Kelly, mm-hmm. I don't know if you're one of those weird people who likes exercise, but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't before. I see the value of it. It occasionally feels good, but it's like doing the dishes. It feels good afterwards, yeah, not yes. during. Yeah. Okay. And so when you compare exercise and stress, it's like this. If I want to be able to go for a run with my 13 year old who's decided that cross country is his thing. I I better start now and start slow because I can't run half a mile without getting really winded, but he runs three miles. And I know that if I put in the work slowly, slowly, if by running, I can get better at running so that I am not so winded that three miles is impossible. I could maybe even be able to, you know, gasp out his name at the end in the same way. If I want to go after some opportunities, invite a relationship in my life, let my kid have a birthday party or a sleepover or go on a cool vacation that I'm going to save up for. I know that there'll be stresses involved in those changes. So if I want to have and enjoy those, or as my dad ages, if I want to be able to help him and navigate those changes without feeling totally winded, the answer is actually to use the stress that I have now anyway, to make me stronger. 
not just to assume that going through hard things is going to make me stronger. That's a little bit like me saying, oh, yeah, I'll be able to run three miles with my son because I lost my car in the parking lot and I wandered around looking yeah, for it. Not how that works. <laughs> it no. doesn't work that way. So stress is like exercise, not only in that they're both awful, but that if you do either of them injured, you can cause serious damage. Mm -hmm. But if you're intentional with either of them, you can get stronger. Yeah, I I was lucky that I got a personal trainer uh, who helped me understand, you know, like the the good ways I could re-enter this world of exercise. And who is then this I magician? I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, she's incredible. Uh, um, Jessica, shout out at Galter. Um, and 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 then and then I could move to my home gym, um, which, which we had. Uh, but also, I, I'd interviewed enough. Uh, authors around habits that I'm like, okay, I've got to lay out my workout clothes the night before. I'm going to reward myself that during my workout, I'm going to listen to one of my favorite podcasts. And, and that times kind of perfectly if I'm, because I'm roughly doing about an hour. Um, and so I can sometimes listen to two if it's, it's two 30 minutes. Um, but all the, I recognize that all these things uh, are necessary for me to keep up this practice. And the other thing I can do is not beat myself up when I miss it. So and when we can build these skills that help us navigate stress more easily, it's the exact same thing, right? If we say, okay, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it with a friend that we don't talk to each other enough. So this will give us a time that we can connect, or I'm going to do this. And then I'm going to do something I really enjoy doing. Like for me, I do the same thing you do with exercise, but it's my trash TV time. Like okay. the most embarrassing television that I love, I, I pick a show and I only watch it when I exercise. And for whatever reason, I'm disciplined enough that I don't watch it when I'm not exercising right. unless I'm sick. And then, so, right. So, and then accepting that, yeah, okay, I'm going to do some workarounds and I'm going to cheat on my own rules sometimes. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. In a moment, I'm going to ask you for a yes and story, but uh, you touch on the importance of laughter, um, but also this cultural idea that if you're having fun, it's not work. Right. That seems toxic. There's this very waspy productivity culture. And I've listened to a lot of your episodes, but I don't know if you've talked about this in particular yet. This productivity culture that says, um, I'm only really valuable if I'm working. I'm valued by the work that I'm doing. And if I take a day to do something for me, or if it's fun, it must not really, I must not really be a value during that time. And if you just let go of that idea, a lot of, and, and you gave a great example, Kelly, a lot of that like heightened vigilance about having to go give a talk and saying, mm -hmm. Wait, I, I'm excited. Some of this feels like excitement yeah. to me, right. but a, a lot of the obstacle for people doing that is no, no, it's my job. And, and like, if I'm excited and I'm looking forward to it and it's fun, then it's somehow of less value or it's somehow less, I don't know, admirable, useful to society when honestly, and I learned this working with our companies at second city, the more fun someone is having doing something, the more drawn in I am. Yeah. The more complete the experience is for me. Yeah. Uh, we interviewed Devin Price, who really deconstructs the word laziness as it's been used in American culture. And it really starts with this Protestant work ethic. And right. Let's blame the Puritans. They, yeah, they really did so this. Go right, go right at the Puritans. But, but basically, it has been used as a, uh, a term uh, that 
implies that a lot of people who are very disadvantaged are not worthy of being held to the degree that other wealthier people are. Um, and, and this idea too, that, that, I mean, I, I think I've talked about this on the podcast, but when, when second city works was starting out. So the arm of second city that goes into the business world, um, we know we're selling play, but if we call it play, the clients ain't buying. Right. They'll, they'll yeah. buy improvisation, which is weird. They will, because they kind of get that as, as a, a, maybe a scientific idea of like, oh yeah, you're working without a script. Totally get that. And, and, and this is just a, a simple a matter of framing. But unfortunately, what it does is it, it underrepresents the vitality of play, especially with regard to learning um, and uh, 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 making things, making new things. Or you have to contextualize it as you're, we're going to make your people uncomfortable. Right. Right. And then they're right. like, Oh, well that's valuable. I will pay for that. Yes. <laughs> when, when, when actually the reason they enjoy it is because they're playing again for the first yeah. time in right. a decade or whatever it is, because yeah. uh, 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 Jennifer Ocker and Nami Bagdonis have this great book on humor um, in, in, in life and in, in business. And they talk about this humor cliff, basically that our laughter uh, just recedes from the age of 23 and we don't get it back to like 65. And that's the world of work. It's not Terrible. helpful. It's not helpful. It's not, it's not helpful in living the lives that we mean to live in making valuable change in our society. I mean, it's, it's not helpful. <laughs> no. And, and in healthcare, especially with, with our journey, it was like, that was, that was a way to inject truth and a way to talk uh, it, with care. Um, and, and again, we're, Anna and I are professionals, so we're able to like, we, we know, I, I understand that people are, when you're talking about serious things, get scared of comedy, um, but comedy is kind of the great place to talk about serious things. It allows us to, in ways that maybe we won't if we're talking about them seriously. For real. All right. Uh, uh, do you have a yes and story for us? I bet you do. I do. I do. And I'm so grateful that I learned this. I mean, I don't want to make you feel old, but at your knee, because I took an opportunity that should have never been offered to me and just brazen my way through it. So (laughs) I finished med school. You know that I left you to give it up for the man, your words, and go into medicine. (laughs) And, um, And then so four years of medical school in which I learned that doctors hate and medical students hate to stand up in front of people and speak. So I was the person who gave every presentation throughout medical school. And I felt kind of guilty about it. Like you guys can have a turn. And they're like, we'd rather have a root canal. So four years of med school, three years of residency in family medicine. And then I came back to the Pittsburgh area where I'd gone to medical school for a bunch of reasons. And I was working for three years in a rural area. And then I come back into Pittsburgh itself to start help start a federally qualified health center. I am deep into the world of medicine and raising my kids. And I got a call from our public television station, which you might know WQED because it's Mr. Rogers television station. And so it's a big public television station. They had just gotten a really big grant to have their education and their broadcasting departments work together for the first time ever. They got this million dollar grant to do a show called IQ smart parent. And they said, we'd like you to host the show. 
We're going to do it in front of a live, live to tape in front of a studio audience. Uh, we have six episodes. We have money for six episodes for the first season. And we'd like you to be the host. And I said, in my head, I said, how would they even know I could do this? I don't know I can do this. I've never done anything like this. I had done one three-minute segment on our local news show about one parenting issue. And that was the full extent of my on-camera television experience. I had done uh, props and continuity for a couple for WKRP, the new WKRP in Cincinnati. So that was a, a big time. Nobody knew I'd done that. And no on-camera experience, no reading prompter experience, no hosting or emceeing experience, no interviewing experience. And they said, would you come in and have a conversation with us about this? And I said, sure. And I came in and they said, we'd like you to host this show. And I said, yes. And why don't I also contribute by consulting on the content and helping you craft the show you're really trying to create to meet parents where they are right now, let you know what parents are actually asking about in my, you know, low income health center. And, and they said, yes. Okay. Yes. So they made me the educational consultant and the host mm. of the show. I was Googling, how do you read from a teleprompter? Right. Right. <laughs> and it turned out to be this incredible experience. I got to ask questions. I got to represent parents in that conversation with experts and ask things that as a parent of four kids at the time who were like 10 and under that I wanted to know about technology and kids. And then all of a sudden I was getting asked to do segments for national television and it gave me this opportunity to reach an audience the size of which I would have never imagined. 2015, I was flying to New York to do my first Good Morning America segment, having never done anything like that before. And it was all because of this yes and answer that I gave to my local PBS station. And that could have been such an easy no, because you were busy. I was really busy. And I actually write about it a little bit in the book as well, because I, I was trying to figure out, like, is this someplace I'm supposed to set a boundary? But it's so aligned with my goals, which was to help more parents than I could reach and to help more adults figure out how do we navigate all this change that's coming at us. Change isn't new, but the rate of change has really picked up. Yeah, absolutely. The book is called From Stressed to Resilient, The Guide to Handle More and Feel Less. Deb, so great to spend this time with you. It's really wonderful. Give Anne my best, okay? I will. The Getting the Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
Survive. 